0: Genesis on Sunday morning, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis, we'll be in chapter 18, <clears throat> and why don't we go ahead and bow our heads and pray as we open up God's Word. Lord, we come to your Word and we, we desire to come with humble hearts, Lord, we desire to come with expectant hearts, and Lord, we thank you that your Spirit is here today, that you want to speak to us, that you want to continue that work of transforming our lives, changing our lives, Lord building us up and edifying us and forming us into the image of Christ. So, Lord, this morning we ask that you'd speak to us a living word from your heart, Lord, straight to us. We pray that you give us insight and understanding to understand your word and understand how it applies to our lives. And, Lord, we pray that the result of this morning was that would be that we leave here as changed people and that your name is glorified. And we pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Sunday mornings, we have been studying through the book of Genesis, and uh, today, as I said, we're in chapter 18, and this is part of a a bigger section which tells us the story of the life of Abraham. Abraham is kind of a big deal, if you didn't know that. He's the father of the Jewish nation, he's even the father of the Arab nation, and he is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. I don't know if i got enough greats in there, but uh, he is the grandfather of Jesus Christ, in in a way. So in the Bible, he is referred to as the father of our faith. He is also referred to as the friend of God. And he is an example for us that shows how a human being, with all of our frailties and our shortcomings and our imperfections and sins, can still be connected to God by faith. We can be declared righteous by God, by faith in his promises, and thereby we can become a friend of God. You know, the Bible tells us that by nature, as human beings, because of our sinful condition, we are children of wrath. That's what it tells us. But the promise of the gospel is this, that if we will believe in the promises of God by faith, if we will walk with God by faith, then we too can be declared righteous by God. And then instead of being children of wrath, we can actually become children of God, and even beyond that, we can become friends of God, and Abraham's a powerful picture of that for us. Today we're going to be looking at one single day in the life of Abraham, one 24-hour day. It's kind of like that show, 24, but without the beeping noises and without any terrorist attacks. This is just one day in the life of Abraham, and he gets some special visitors, and we're going to see what happens. We're going to break it down like this for you note-takers, for you outliners. It goes like this. From verses 1 through 8, we're going to be talking about the appearance of the Lord. From verse 9 to 21, we're going to be talking about the laughter of Sarah. And from verses 22 to 33, we're going to be talking about the intercession of Abraham. Abraham. So first of all, let's talk about the appearance of the Lord. If you've got your Bible, please read along with me. This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So Abraham's sitting at his tent. It's hot. He lives in the desert. It's probably hot a lot. And he's sitting in the, in the doorway of his tent on a hot afternoon, and who shows up but God himself? God shows up to meet Abraham. You know, God's word tells us that no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God the Father. But it also tells us that God the Son, Jesus Christ, has made him known. And Jesus is referred to in, in the New Testament as the image, the visible image of the invisible God. And what that means is that whenever we see an example of of God showing up and appearing to someone, especially in the Old Testament, what we are seeing here is called a Christophany, which means it's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament because he is God from eternity. He has no beginning and no end, and he shows up even in the Old Testament. It's called a Christophany. It's when Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. So here's an interesting thing to take note of. If you've got your Bible, check out in verse 1, check out how that word Lord is spelled, and notice that it's spelled with all capital letters, right? The word Lord is in all caps. Whenever the word Lord is in all caps, that means that in the original text, in the original document, this was the name of God, Yahweh, some pronounce it jehovah it's it's you know the tetragram it's the yahweh which means that that god you know this is the name that god told moses to call him when god appeared to moses at the burning bush you know and and because the the jewish people who copied these documents and and you know made the copies they they were afraid of Um, using the name of the Lord in vain. So they didn't even want to write this most holy name of God, so what they would do is that they changed it to Adonai, which means Lord in Hebrew, but they would write it in all caps to make sure everybody understood that that originally this was the name of God, Yahweh, the name which God gave to Moses at the burning bush. You know, Moses asked God, he said, tell me your name. Tell me who it is that I, I should tell the people who it is who sent me. And God said, tell them, I am sent you. God said, that is who I am. That is my name. I am that I am. And that's a powerful thing. uh, It can be confusing for people if you don't really understand why he says that. But the, the name refers to God's character. He is. He is the living one. He is ever present. He is eternal and he is all sufficient that name I am it speaks of sufficiency it speaks of ever presence he is everything he is all in all and whatever you need whatever I need he is our sufficiency he is whatever I need at any given moment he is able to meet all my needs he is what my soul needs he is sufficient for all things In Hebrew, this is where the name Yahweh comes from. It actually comes from the words, I am. Uh, So the point here in this section that I'm trying to make is this. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is referred to as Yahweh. Now that's really important because it just emphasizes the fact that the Bible teaches that Jesus is in fact God. That God is a triune being. He is a Trinity. Uh, He is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here we have an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, but it's significant that here, as well as other places, Jesus is referred to by the name Yahweh, the name of God. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, this is a big emphasis, but it doesn't always come through to us unless we understand this. You know, Jesus makes seven I am statements throughout the book of John. Even the book of John is really focused on these seven I am statements of Jesus. And at one point, Jesus even makes the statement, he says to these people, before Abraham was, I am. And all of us, you know, linguistics nerds and other grammar nerds are here and we're like, oh, hey, that's uh, improper grammar. You should say, before Moses or before Abraham was, I was. But no, it's not a grammatical mistake. It was his very intention to say this. He is claiming in that sentence to be God. He's saying, I am Yahweh. Jesus was speaking to Jewish people who knew the Jewish language, the Hebrew language, and they knew the Hebrew scriptures. They knew the name of God in the Old Testament, which derives from the words, I am. And so it's so significant that over and over in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And and that's why people wanted to kill him. You know, that's why they picked up stones to stone him. They thought he was committing blasphemy by calling himself God. And he would have been, had it not been true. So I say that to say this. The Bible, from beginning to end, even from Genesis, it teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, that the nature of God is that he is one God who eternally exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, you wonder, well, how important is that really? Well, it is very important in the big picture of things in the Bible story because it means that Jesus was more than just a a good man who came and taught people to be nice and get along and play well with each other, but he was in fact God himself come to earth in human flesh, creating a way for us to come to him by his death and resurrection and then showing us that way. Let's continue from verse 2. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant so they said do as you have said this is not the first time that the lord has appeared to abraham and so abraham sees these men coming and he's like hey i know what this is this has happened to me before so he he runs to meet him he runs to meet the lord now that's significant because first of all it's the desert it's hot And this man is 99 years old. When was the last time you saw a 99-year-old man just toss his cane aside and just start running to meet somebody? It doesn't happen that often, especially not in the desert in the middle of the day. Furthermore, in the Middle East, even to this day, men do not run. That is considered very unbecoming, especially elderly men and especially men of any kind of social status or men who have money. It's a cultural thing in that society. Men do not run. But Abraham sees the Lord, and at that point, he doesn't care anymore about being dignified. He's excited to see the Lord coming his way, and he shows it in his actions. He runs to meet him, and he throws himself on the ground before him. Even though in that culture, this would be considered an unbecoming thing. It would be considered even childish or undignified for a man of his standing and of his age to do that kind of thing. You know, there's another story in the Bible in which we see in. Older, wealthy man who makes himself totally undignified in order to run and meet someone who's coming his way. The father of the prodigal son, when he saw his son returning home, it says that he ran to meet him. And that's very significant. That story is a picture of how God rejoices at the sinner who returns to their heavenly Father. Who returns humble and repentant, not expecting anything anymore, just asking for forgiveness. And asking to be received back into the Father's home, even as a servant. And the Father, when He sees Him coming, He runs to meet Him. He isn't ambivalent. He isn't just kind of like, eh, whatever, you know. You again, you know, I thought you left. I thought you told me that you're doing your own thing now and that you don't need me anymore. I thought you didn't want me in your life now. Well, I guess you can come back, but I'm going to put a guilt trip on you for a while if you can handle that. No, he doesn't do that at all. What does he do? He runs to meet him and he kills a fattened calf for him. That's exactly what Abraham does here. You know, he runs to meet him, and that's exactly what God does to all those who will turn to him with hearts of repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking restoration, and seeking a relationship with God. If you have become distant from God, understand that if you will turn to him, then he will turn to you and he will run towards you. That is the heart of God. And Abraham here, he's not afraid to become undignified in the eyes of others as he runs toward Jesus. And our Heavenly Father, He left the majesty of heaven. And do you understand? Our Heavenly Father became undignified for us. He went to the cross. He ran to us. That is how much He loves us. That is His heart towards us. Let's carry on from verse 6. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. She's needing bread. Not like most of us where we need bread, like N-E-E-D, like I really need some bread, so I'm going to go to the store. No, she's needing bread. This is hospitality. And, and Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Uh, then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So here Abraham's showing hospitality. Uh, hospitality is more than just a nice thing to do. Actually, the Bible tells us that hospitality should be a distinguishing feature of the Christian faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that, that God's people should practice hospitality. One of the requirements in the New Testament for a person to be a pastor or elder or Christian leader is that they would be hospitable. And the reason why is because at one time, we were strangers to God. But God befriended us, right? He reached out to us, he loved us, he served us, and he took care of us. He fed us, he clothed us, he housed us, and he invited us into his family, into his kingdom. So we should be people on the same hand who extend the hand of friendship and the hand of kindness to others, who open our doors before others because God extended a hand of kindness and friendship to us and opened the door to us. You know, that's one way that we can reflect the heart of God in a very practical way, by being hospitable, by loving people, by caring for people. You know, I think most people in Colorado... If you, you could be like the grim reaper, but if you've got a barbecue and some meat, they will come over to your house, right? You could be like a serial killer, but you're like, hey, I've got some brats and I've got a fire. And they're like, yeah, I think I could do that. You know what I mean? And uh, unless they're vegetarian, in which case you got to get a little bit creative. But, uh, but you know, people begin to wonder when you're hospitable, they wonder, why are you being so nice, you know? And the answer is because God loves you, God loves me, he's blessed me, and I want to share that love and those blessings with you. So as the Lord appears to Abraham, here's what we see. We see the teaching of the triune God. We see that in all of scripture, starting here in Genesis, that it's all about how Jesus shows up and intervenes in people's lives and situations and gives them hope and pours out blessing on them and leads them in the way everlasting Let us, therefore, you know, let us be people, as we see Abraham, let us be people who respond to Jesus like Abraham responded to Jesus. Running to meet him, welcoming him into our homes, into our lives, into our families. And let us be hospitable people who reflect who God is by loving and blessing others. So that's the appearance of the Lord. Let's talk about the laughter of Sarah. Let's read verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife. And he said, she is in the tent. Now, maybe that's not too significant to you, but, but I, it reminds me of something that I experienced. You know, the custom in the Middle East uh, to this day, and in, in parts of Asia, is that in very conservative homes, the women will prepare the meal And then the men will eat together and the women will stay in a separate area. And in some houses, you know, however their house is set up, it will sometimes be uh, separated from the men by a curtain. That's kind of what we're seeing here with Sarah. You know, the first uh, few years that I was in Hungary as a missionary, my wife, Rosemary, and I, we worked in a refugee camp. And this was located in an abandoned Soviet military base on the edge of town in Debrecen, Hungary. And uh, we got to share the gospel with a lot of people there. It was, it was really a, a really blessed time of ministry. We saw people from a lot of different nations come to know the Lord. And, um, you know, in this one camp, we just had this continuous flow of thousands of people from all over Africa and Asia. And pretty much wherever there was a conflict in the world at the time, we would see refugees coming from those places. And amongst those, you know, when I first arrived, it was 2002 in January, and it was, you know, only a few months after the the whole conflict in Afghanistan had started after 9-11. So, um, you know, we had a lot of Afghans. And one of the customs there was, uh, amongst his Afghans, even to this day, is that, uh, you know, they would live in this one room in the camp, everybody got one room, and the, the real conservative ones, they would separate it with a curtain. And if a man came over to visit, well, then they'd put their wife behind the curtain and they'd, you know, drink tea with the man. And uh, they consider that a matter of modesty, even, even a level beyond, you know, their, their full coverings of their face and their heads. So one time we had this mission team come over from Oregon right? Now, Oregon's pretty far away from Afghanistan. So we had this uh, team come from Oregon to minister with us, and this, their team leader was this really sweet man. He was in his late 50s, and really, he had never been outside of the U.S. before, but he had a, a totally pure heart, and he really loved these refugees. So we took him to visit this, this one Afghan man who was interested in knowing more about Jesus, and as we were talking with the man, the man mentions that he's married. So our friend from Oregon is like, "You're married. Where's your wife? I want to meet her." And he's like, well, "You know, where is she? Bring her out here." And these guys like, "Well, she's right over there behind the curtain." And our friend was like, well, "What's she doing in the curtain? You know, she, I've, she's been here the whole time. Bring her out here. I want to meet her. She should hang out with us." So at this point, our Afghan friend is. It's pretty uncomfortable, right? He's, he's kind of nervous at this point. His whole this world is kind of being shaken up. So uh, our American friend is not picking up on it at all, right? And he just keeps on telling him, Come on, man, bring your wife out here. I want to meet her. So this guy very reluctantly, you know, he tells his wife, you know, All right, come on out from behind the curtain. And she does. And our American friend stands up and he says, Oh, it's so nice to meet you. And he just gives her a big hug. Right? Uh, these guys, I think the guy had a stroke at that point. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That was like the most scarring moment of their entire lives. Like, they were human trafficked all the way to Europe from Afghanistan, but this was the worst thing that ever happened to them. You know what I mean? So, lesson of the story from the Bible here. If you're ever in the Middle East or in Asia, and there's a woman behind a curtain, don't try to hug her, okay? That doesn't, that's, you're not supposed to do that. So, um,. This is Sarah. She's, eating. she's not eating lunch with the men, but, but she's nearby, and she's near enough to eavesdrop. So let's carry on from verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out? and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. She's like, No, I didn't. He said, Yeah, you did. I, hear, I heard it. So the Lord tells Abraham, He says, Hey, Abraham, remember that promise I gave you many times over the last you know, two decades or plus that you're going to have a son? Well, you better start building some furniture and setting up the baby room because we're putting it on the calendar. One year from now, you're going to have a baby. Abraham's been waiting for this for 24 years. You know, it's not always been easy. Abraham has not always waited faithfully. But God has remained faithful to his promise nonetheless. So Sarah's eavesdropping on this conversation, and she hears this news that they're going to have a baby. And how does she respond? She laughs. Now, but this isn't just a laugh like, oh, that's funny. This is a laugh of unbelief. That's why God calls her out on it. right? This is her laugh saying, ha, I've heard that one before. God's been promising us a kid for 24 long Painful, frustrating years. So you know what? I'll believe it when I see it. But I doubt anything's actually going to happen. You know, Sarah. It was. It tells us that she is post menopause, right? That means that it's not even possible for her to get pregnant at this point. And so she laughs and she says, "Yeah, right." Right. If she was writing a text message, I think this is how it would go down in 2012. She'd write a text, God, she'd get this text message, you're going to have a baby, and her response would be, whatever, yeah, right, heard that one before, you know? This is the kind of thing we're talking about. It's not a laugh of joy, it's a laugh of scoffing. It's a laugh of unbelief. And the Lord calls her out on it he says, did you just laugh at me? I am the Lord of heaven and earth, and I came to your house for lunch. And you're laughing at me. I, I'm going to give you a baby. I'm going to bless you. And you're laughing at me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, here's what Sarah was doing. And it's something that we contend to do as well. She was looking only to her human possibilities. She was looking only at the human limitations. And she was not looking at the power of God. But don't we all do that Sometimes. You know, oftentimes we find things impossible and incredible. Why? Because we look only at them from a material angle and not at the God who is able to set aside even material laws and restrictions. So she's gone through menopause. Well, what is that to God? God who can do anything. That nothing's even difficult for him. You know, I think we can have a tendency to to think about God's ability in relation to degrees of difficulty like some things are pretty easy for him but there are some things that are pretty complicated pretty hard but God's reminding us here that there's nothing that's even difficult for him and that means that whatever situation you're in whatever situation I'm in no matter how impossible it might seem it's not even difficult for God And the very purpose why God has put Sarah in this difficult situation and perhaps the very reason why God has put you in whatever difficult situation you find yourself in today is because he wants to bring even more glory out of this for his name. Because it will have to be a miracle. So Sarah laughs at the promise of God. If you remember back to last week, we looked at chapter 17 and we read about how Abraham also laughed when God told him his plan to give Sarah a baby when she was 90 years old. But Sarah's laugh is is of a different nature than Abraham's laugh. Sarah gets rebuked. Abraham laughed in the presence of the Lord and didn't get rebuked. Because Abraham's laugh was a laugh of pure joy. It was a laugh of ecstasy. Sarah's laugh is a scoff of unbelief. In other words, Abraham was laughing with God but Sarah's laughing at God and that makes a big difference. Here in a story we also see another example of people who laughed for all the wrong reasons. The residents of Sodom also laughed at God. They took his word as a joke and they lived in a way that showed that they scoffed at him and mocked him. Let's read verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am going to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he promised to him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. You know, we tend to think of the sin of Sodom as homosexuality, but actually there was a more more fundamental issue at play in, in Sodom. You know, homosexual practices, in other words, were really more of a symptom of a deeper underlying issue. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord describes to us what the sin of Sodom was. And the Lord says this, that the sin of Sodom was pride, selfishness, and a haughty spirit. That was what was underlying everything. Pride, selfishness, and a haughty spirit was the underlying reason why the residents of Sodom lived the way that they did why they committed sin with no concern whatsoever for what God had to say about it. And so not only did they laugh in God's face by the way that they lived, but they also literally laughed at God as well. Check out chapter 19, the next chapter, verse 14. When Lot finds out that God's going to destroy Sodom, it says this, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, he says, "'Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city.'" But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be joking. So Lot goes and tells his sons-in-laws that that God is going to destroy their city. He's going to judge their city because of sin. But instead of taking the warning seriously, they laugh. They say, yeah, right, God's going to judge us. That's a good one. They didn't take God's judgment seriously. They didn't take God's word seriously. They took it as a joke. You know, essentially the Bible teaches us that uh, laughter... And humor are good things. They're gifts from God. And science, interestingly, uh, backs that up completely. They've done a lot of studies showing how good it is for us to laugh. Uh, I, I did a little, you know, minor research this weekend, so I saw that, you know, studies show that when you laugh, what happens physiologically is that some chemicals are released in your brain. And these chemicals do a lot for you. They boost your immune system and they actually cleanse your body of waste products from your organ and your tissue, right? Uh, and the same, the same chemicals that are produced when a person laughs, uh, scientists are able to synthetically reproduce these chemicals. And you can buy them, I don't know where, maybe a pharmacy, maybe a health food store. But uh, I read this one writing that said that the amount of chemicals, these particular chemicals that are released in your brain, when you laugh for one minute, would cost you about $10,000. So save yourself some money, please, and just laugh, right? Um, so, So studies have shown that people who laugh a lot get sick less, they heal faster, and they have lower occurrences of cancer and mental illness. They live longer lives. Now I also believe that humor is a gift from God and, and that part of being created in the image of God is that we have a sense of humor and an appreciation for irony. You know, if you, if you spend time with small children, they have a sense of humor. You don't have to teach them to think that things are funny. They just think things are funny. They see things and they laugh and they, they, they have a sense of humor. You know, children start laughing at about eight weeks old. And statistics that I read said this, that the average child under age 10 laughs about 200 times a day, but the average adult over age 30 laughs about 15 times a day. Now that's kind of sad, right? What that means is that we start out in this world laughing, but the more time we spend in this fallen world, the less we laugh. And that's why I believe that in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, where everything is going to be made new, where there's going to be no more sin, I believe there's going to be a lot of laughter. And, and that means that the reason we have a sense of humor is because God has a sense of humor and we're created in his image. And you can see that if you read God's word. He uses irony. That's the main, you know, humor that's found in the Bible. Jesus had a sense of humor. Jesus even used humor in his teachings. You know, you think about, if you've ever told this, the words of Jesus to a child, you know, some of these parables. If you ever tell them to four or 5 year old, you know, about this guy who's got this log in his eye. You know, that's a ridiculous thing to think about. And then he's over there nagging at this other guy that, hey, you got a speck in your own eye. You tell that to a child and they find that hilarious, right? If you if you talk about, you know, a guy who strains out a gnat but swallows a camel, you know, little kids just bust up. They're like, swallowing a camel, that's hilarious, you know? And we, we don't, when we read black and white words on a page, it's hard to think about the tone that, w- that they were set in. It's hard to think about the setting that it happened in. But I believe that, you know, that it was funny when Jesus said it, that he said it in a way that was ridiculous and it made people laugh. And, you know, humor is a great tool for sharing knowledge because you're revealing uh, error in order to reveal uh, reveal truth. You know, comedy is essentially this. uh, Well, I put it this way. The main form of comedy used in the Bible is irony. And irony can be defined this way. Irony is the holding up to public view of human vice or folly. You know, the reason it's funny when people do dumb things is because alone, out of all creation, human beings have been endowed with dignity because we're created in the image of God. That's why, you know, we watch slapstick comedy about people and not animals, right? It's funny when somebody falls down or hits their hand with a hammer and we watch YouTube videos about it. But nobody watches YouTube videos about like a horse falling in a well or something, you know what I mean? We don't watch YouTube videos about animals having accidents and running into stuff and getting hurt because that's not funny, right? But it is funny when people who are endowed with dignity are behaving in a way that is less dignified. That's comedy. It's uh, the holding up to public view of human vice and folly. And and what that means is this, that the Bible teaches us that it is good to laugh at ourselves because we're fallen creatures and we do dumb things sometimes. And sometimes those things are ridiculous and sometimes they're hilarious. Generally speaking, as people, we, we tend to take ourselves too seriously and we take God too lightly. And what the Bible wants us to do, what God's word teaches us, that we should take ourselves less seriously, and we should take God more seriously. So it's good to laugh at ourselves. It's good to laugh at human silliness. It's good to laugh for joy and delight, like when you chase your kids around the house and they squeal and run around, you know. But we should never laugh at God. And that's what we see here with Sarah. We laugh at ourselves, we laugh at human silliness, but we don't laugh at God. We don't laugh at God's word because that kind of laughter has a name in the Bible. It's called scoffing. It's called mockery. And the Bible has a lot to say about scoffers and mockers and people who have a cynical attitude towards the things of God. You see, the picture being painted in the last few chapters of Genesis is this. There's a fundamental difference between the heart of Abraham and the heart of Sarah. Because both Abraham and Sarah doubted the promise of God. You remember that? They both doubted the promise of God. But there are two basic kinds of doubt which Abraham and Sarah represent for us. First of all, there's the kind of doubt that we see in Abraham. This is what I call sincere doubt. This is the kind of doubt that wants to believe, but is honestly, sincerely just struggling and having a hard time believing. You know, this is like the man in the Gospel of Mark with the sick daughter who tells Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. This is the kind of doubt Abraham had. It's sincere doubt. He sincerely wanted to believe the promise of God, but he struggled to believe. You know, in chapter 15, Abraham, it says that Abraham believed the promise of God and God credited it to him as righteousness. But in the very next verse, it says that Abraham asked God, but God, how can I be sure? And that's interesting, right? It says, Abraham believed, but yet he was struggling with doubt. And he's saying, Lord, I believe, but I'm having a lot of doubts. I'm having a hard time believing that your word is true for me right now. I just don't see it right now, Lord, so please help me. But the other kind of doubt, the kind of doubt that we see in Sarah, is the doubt that scoffs. The doubt that says, yeah, right. And pigs might grow wings and fly out of the building, you know? This is a cynical type of doubt. It's a doubt that has surrendered fully to unbelief. And this is the kind of doubt we see also in the citizens of Sodom. In their case, it was because of the haughty spirit. I believe that every believer struggles with doubt at times. And the reason is this, because doubt is a basic element of faith. Do you know that? The doubt is actually a basic element of faith because we don't see God. You know, Jesus said it's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you can feel it. You can see its effects, and that's how it is with God. We don't see him, but we do see the proof of his existence all around us. But nonetheless, a basic element of faith is a certain degree of doubt. A lot of the Bible is is compromised of stories of people who... Doubt, who has struggled with doubt in regard to the promises of God. So doubt in and of itself is not a bad thing. It is a very natural and human thing. But what matters is what you do with your doubt. You know, there was a time in my life, It's about seven years ago, when I, I had a period of uh, about a month or maybe a little more, when I, when I struggled with doubt in a pretty serious way. It kind of reached a head at that point in my life. And I was already a pastor at that time. I had planted a church. I was pastoring that church. And I was teaching the Bible multiple times a week. And I began to have these thoughts of, Okay, I'm, I'm telling these people all these things about God and about God's word. But do I actually believe these things myself? Do I actually believe that these things are really true? I, I was like Abraham. I was having sincere doubt because I wanted to believe, but I was struggling. And I prayed, and I sought the Lord about it seriously, and, and uh, I, I even took a vacation, you know, and I, I told the Lord, Lord, I believe, but help me, Lord. Help me work through these doubts that I'm struggling with. And what the Lord did in my heart uh, was probably one of the most significant things that's happened to me since I've become a Christian, is that He brought me back to the very foundation of my faith in Him. And he built me up from there again, you know. It was like being born again, again. I had to go back to the issue of, do I believe in the existence of God, you know. And once I got that settled, that I can't deny the existence of God, then I had to deal with questions of the nature of God and the character of God. And, and then, you know, over time, one after another, the Lord rebuilt my faith From the ground up, and I and I ended up coming out of that what I call a crisis of faith or doubt, with a faith that was actually more robust, more strong than the faith that I had before, because the faith I had now, the faith I have now, is the fruit of wrestling with the scriptures and the fruit of letting God walk with me through my doubts and give me answers to my questions. I honestly think it was one of the most important things that's happened to me in my walk with God when I stopped trying to suppress my doubts and pretend that they weren't there and rather just bore my heart to God and said, God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief and walk me through these things. Help me in the areas where I struggle with doubt. But notice what God does with Sarah. He doesn't allow her to just go and become a scoffer and just become completely cynical, but he reaches out to her and he reasons with her. and He says, Sarah, Don't forget who I am. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. There's nothing that's even difficult for me. So let's work together. Let's work through your doubt. Don't just give yourself over to cynicism and unbelief. You know, Sarah, don't just say, I can't believe what God says anymore. I can't believe his word anymore. But Sarah, let me walk through this with you. Let me walk through this doubt with you and bring you back to a place of faith in my word and confidence in my promises based on my character, which is love and faithfulness. You know, if I struggle with doubt, then I'm assuming that some of you struggle with doubt as well. And if you do, if you ever struggle with doubt in regard to the things of God, here's my encouragement for you is that you would make sure that in your doubt, you never become a scoffer like Sarah started to become laughing at the word of God, thinking of it as a joke. But do what Abraham did. Seek the Lord, bear your heart to him and tell him, Lord, I want to believe, but I'm struggling now. Please help me work through these doubts and come out on the other side with a faith that's stronger than what I have now. That's what God did for Abraham. That's what God did for Job. And I believe that's what God will do for you if you come to him with your sincere doubt rather than a scoffing doubt. So it's a good thing, as we see here in in this section about Sarah's laughter, it's a good thing to laugh with God, it's never a good thing to laugh at God. Read this last section, this is about the intercession of Abraham, from verse 22. So the men turned from there and went, oh I'm sorry, from verse... Yeah, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom, and Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes, but suppose five of the fifty were lacking. Will you destroy the city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, "O oh Lord, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, for he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham hears that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah as judgment for their sin. Some people hear that and they don't like that idea at all. They don't like the idea of God judging people for their sin. They say, that's just not fair. That's just not right. God can't do that. Well, reality is that yes, it is fair and and God can do that. You know, Uh, you parents who tell your kids, you know, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. Well, That's not exactly true. You don't exactly have the right to do that. That's kind of true in part. But ultimately, God is the giver of life and as the giver of life and as the sustainer of life who holds every breath in his hand, he alone has the right to bring about life and to take away life. So God's word that says that all people have sinned, all people have fallen short of the glory of God, and since the wages of sin is death, that means that all people deserve death and judgment. In fact, the most fair thing in the world would be if God would judge all of us. And the fact that God doesn't destroy sin in the moment that we sin and destroy us, it shows that God is patient and God is merciful. Mercy is this. Mercy is not giving someone what they rightly deserve. But grace, on the other hand, is giving someone something that they don't deserve. So God is merciful to us. He doesn't give us what we rightly deserve, which is judgment. And he's gracious to us in that he gives us many things we don't deserve at all. And so since we don't deserve anything from God except judgment, and since God has discretion over how he dispenses grace and mercy, that means that he has the right to judge whomever he pleases, whenever he pleases. You know, the men of Sodom have laughed in God's face for many years, and they're completely unrepentant, and God says... I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. And, and Abraham hears this, and what does he do? He intercedes on behalf of the city of Sodom. And the basic argument he's making before God is that it would be wrong for God to judge the righteous with the wicked. And interestingly enough, God does not argue with him. God's word tells us this, that Jesus intercedes for us before God the Father. Do you ever think about what that means, that Jesus intercedes for us? It means, among other things, it means that he's pleading our case. He is like an advocate. That's exactly actually what God's word calls him in 1 John 2 verse 1. John says, my little children, I I write these things so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And what exactly is the case that Jesus pleads before the Father as our advocate? On behalf of those who've been redeemed through faith in Jesus. This is the case that he pleads. That if we put our faith in Christ. In him all of our sins are forgiven. They are washed away. In him we have been justified. You know justification is a step beyond forgiveness. Because forgiveness means you're free from the penalty of something. But justification is actually you know, forgiveness is a negative, but justification is a positive. It's the bestowal of a status. And the status you are bestowed with when you are justified is the status of righteousness. The Bible describes it as being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It is bestowed upon you as your new status. And so the case that Jesus pleads continually before, uh, on behalf of those who have been forgiven and justified by faith in him is basically this. Father, he or she has been declared righteous. And you cannot destroy the righteous with the wicked. That would not be fair. It would not be just. We just talked a moment ago about how the most fair thing and just thing for God to do would be to judge sin and sinners. But that's exactly the point. That if we are in Christ, we have not only been forgiven, but we've been justified. We have been declared righteous. It's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that has been Paid to our account by God's grace through our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But if we've been declared righteous, then you see what I'm saying? It would be unjust for God to condemn us and judge us for sin. And that's why, what 1 John 1.9 even says. It says this, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and he is just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all righteousness. Notice that it's not only, if we are in Christ, it's not only God's grace and mercy that he forgives us, but it's also his justice. Because Jesus has already paid the price for our sin on the cross, once and for all. The righteous requirements of the law, which, re, which require sin to be punished by death, they have been filled, they have been met in him, by him. That is why Christ said on the cross, he said, It is finished. You know, interestingly, the case that Abraham's pleading before God, it's the exact same case that Jesus pleads before God continually as he makes intercession for us who have been made righteous through faith in his finished work on the cross. So in his intercession, without even realizing so, Abraham was declaring the gospel message, and he was foreshadowing Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are interceding on our behalf, Lord, before the Father. Thank you that you are our advocate and thank you that in you all the righteous requirements of the law have been met. Lord, thank you that you have saved us, you have cleansed us, you have redeemed us. And Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone who's here today who's struggling with doubt, Lord. Doubting your word, doubting your promises, doubting who you are. Lord, I pray that you would not allow them to become a scoffer, Lord, but that you would walk through that doubt with them and bring them to a place of true, robust faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, we we pray right now for those who might even be here today amongst us who have not yet received you, as their Lord and Savior, as the Redeemer of their souls, who have not yet received the forgiveness and the justification that is found through faith in Jesus Christ, through a walk with God. And Lord, we pray that even this moment, by your Spirit, you would stir in their hearts and bring them to the conviction of their need for you, their need for a Savior. For us who do know you, Lord, we ask that you would refresh us and renew us by your Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen.